You're listening to the Film Marketing Academy podcast, the audio series dedicated to helping filmmakers create better film marketing campaigns faster. Join your host, Pascal Fintoni, for what promises to be an exciting and intriguing voyage of discovery filled with advice, stories, and film marketing ideas. Thank you for tuning in. And now, on with today's episode of the Film Marketing Academy podcast. Okay, Pascal, this week we are going to talk about an American werewolf in London. Now, earlier, uh, one of the news items was that Taco Moon campaign with the moon <laughs> actually grafted into the London Eye. So a lovely little uh, little teaser there. But we actually did discuss this in that Twitter space yesterday because one of the conversations that we had in the Twitter space was, which film shall we review within this part of the show? Now, this is the 40th episode of the uh, podcast and therefore, we've talked about 40 films. So we actually specifically wanted to talk about a film today that's 40 years old. And we came up with a list of films. Uh, Excalibur was one. Um, Clash of the Titans was another. American Werewolf in London got the popular vote within that Twitter space that we were in. It did. So there we are. All the others, including Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and a few others, will eventually be mentioned and covered in film marketing. But... American Werewolf in London, I remember seeing the trailers and the teaser content on French TV at the time I was probably 12 or 13 and being petrified. And I don't think I saw the movie till much, much later using one of my friends, a kind of a dodgy copy on a VHS cassette. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I didn't go to the cinema to see this because I think I was probably too young and it did have a <laughs> Uh, X certificate in those days, yeah. um, but even even when I did finally see it on VHS, it, it's actually quite a scary film. It, it's I mean that transformation sequence where the the guy becomes the werewolf mm. is I mean it was done you know there was no CGI in those days. It was all done with with ania, not even aniatronics. I can't even say that word. Uh, it was all done with effectively masks and um, fake skin and fake hair, and, and it was all physical, practical effects it? by Rick yeah. Baker. Yeah, um, and really for him, what an achievement, which was recognised for the very first time at the Oscars when he won the Oscar for best, you know, lead special effects. Yeah, I mean. The thing that, to this day, and I, and I watch this film quite regularly, is one of my favourite films, and we actually, my wife and I watched this quite recently, maybe only about three months mm. ago. It's such a good sequence, that, where he transforms into the werewolf. It, but it, it's, it actually looks as if it hurts. Do you know, it's so convincing that his transformation, you think, it, you know, this is not an enjoyable experience this guy's going through here. It's just incredible. And we must remind everybody that in 1981, 40 yeah. years ago, the audiences, movie audiences, and then later on, obviously, video cassette audiences had never seen a transformation scene in the past. No. There was almost like a crossfade effect or there was no cutaways. But also importantly, usually whatever whatever attempt in the past in movies for transformation were done in a dark setting. Yes. And John Landis gave himself the challenge, or should we say Rick Baker and his team, the challenge of this will be done with full line, this will be done in an apartment well lit, and we're going to see everything so we everything. can't cheat. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> now, Pascal, it's 
it's obviously a horror film. Um, it's very gory. There's a lot of blood in it, and and the special effects uh, and the gore are tip top. But it, it's almost that. It, I mean, it's a comedy as well, isn't it? You know, some of it is incredibly dark humour, but it is a funny film as well as being a horror film. But I think that's where horror movies work better, I think, where there's, mm. there's release. But also, mm. if you look at John Landis and his work, he's mm. really the master of comedy. I mean, I would say, thanks to John, the 80s have been a wonderful era. Yep. You know, from yep. coming to America 1988, going back to Three Amigos, a very special film for you, Richard and I. You had Treading Places, uh, back with Eddie Murphy, but of course, the reason why he was allowed finally to make the American Werewolf in London is because he really proved his worth as a director with the Bruce Brothers in 1980. Yeah, yeah. And this this film has so many sequences that stick in your mind. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a dream within a dream sequence mm. earlier on early on in the film, which is is really quite frightening. And I mean, the first time I saw that it was like, oh my goodness! Um, obviously, the transformation effect that we we said earlier on that that was remarkable as well. But then later in the film, when the werewolf goes on the rampage around Pic- Piccadilly Circus, oh, well, that's you know, just got incredible buses crashing into cars and cars going off off the side of the road and people being bitten in half and stuff like that you know it, it's really it's really quite spectacular in its goriness isn't it i think you that and it feels like a complex movie to make that makes any sense mm. and of course it was made in winter just to be mean to your audio actors uh, the, the actors that plays obviously the, the character of um David Kessler, who is yes. the one that is transforming little by little into a werewolf through bad dreams and eventually full transformation, and has been haunted by the ghost of his friend Jack Goodman, who was the first victim in the Moors. But yes. you know, he was told there's a scene when you watch the um, special DVD documentary where he was told to run around in the woods, pretty much naked. Yeah. And John Landis said, "You know, you look a bit tense and stiff." I said, "No, I'm just cold. <laughs> this is March in Wales, and you want me to run around in the woods naked." So I think it was a complex film. You mentioned the Piccadilly Circus sequence. This would have taken so much planning and so yeah. much, obviously, participation from extras and the police as well that, uh, again, from a production point of view, John Landis really, really pushed uh, the boat out on this one. Yeah, and, and Jack Goodman, again, you said the first victim. One of the things that really, I mean, again, it's 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 gory, but he keeps coming back. You know, he's killed early on in the movie, but he keeps haunting uh, David Kessler to try to get him to um, kill himself before he turns into this werewolf and and of course the first time he comes back as a ghost I guess he's a fresh corpse isn't he he's, mm. he's got his skin's been pulled off his face you can see parts of his skull but he's bright red because of all the blood but every time after that that he comes back again and haunts David <laughs> Kessler his body's decomposed a bit more until the final time he appears towards the end of the film he's all green and sort of oozing with maggots and stuff I mean it's it's absolutely gross but they do it so well and again he's got he's got that tongue-in-cheek sort of american scamp uh, glint in his eye even when his his body's falling apart Uh, that is good black humor very much so and and bear in mind that at the time there was another movie that was trying to obviously attract audiences in and around the themes of werewolf which was the howling yes Yes. Now, I can't actually recall 
much about The Howling. I've, I've definitely read the book. I don't recall the film of The Howling, so I, I can't in my head remember either seeing it or if I did, it obviously didn't compare very favourably to this. It is, it, the Howling is is fine. It's just a more straightforward story. And yeah. There isn't a humour. It's just obviously the victims and people being chased around by a werewolf who actually uh, stands on his hind legs. So it's more of a bipedal werewolf. And John Landis insisted that this would be more a wolf, you know, using four legs. Wolf. Um, to add to the tension in terms of, you know, who's going to break through the box office, um, John Landis actually wrote the original screenplay for American Werewolf in London in 1969. Can you imagine that? Wow. Whilst he was working, uh, helping out on Kelly's Heroes. Um, right. you know, and in between, so back to creativity, in between you know, being busy helping out, he was just jotting down some notes. And he promised Rick Baker that Rick would get the gig in doing the special effects. But of course, time goes by. Rick Baker doesn't hear much more. So he agrees to actually be the special effects guy on The Howling. Soon after, as is always the case in life, he gets a phone call from Rick Baker saying, we're ready, we need you to work on American Werewolf in London. So Rick Baker uh, remained as a consultant on The Howling, but one of his colleagues worked on the film and he could dedicate all his time and effort, which was required, you can imagine, some of the um, most complex special effects took six hours to put on the poor actors. Gosh. And again, there are some very iconic UK actors in this mm, film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, you, I've never heard of um, David Norton and Griffin Dunn who played the Americans, but from the UK's point of view, we have Jenny Agatha, who she was um, in Logan's Run. That's the other big role that she'd had. I mean, I am sure that at that point when this film came out, I had a massive crush on on Jenny Agatha. She ooh, was ooh, the, the go to <laughs> the go to uh, female uh, co star, wasn't she? But also shout outs for John Woodvine, who plays mm. the Doctor. I yep. mean, he's a character actor. He's been in loads of UK TV series like the aforementioned Doctor Who. I think he was in Zed Cars and that sort of thing. Um, Brian Glover, mm. who's the bald guy in the pub who tells the joke about um, throwing people out of the plane, which probably is a little bit uh, bordering on um, politically incorrect these days, but he very well done in, in the actual film. And again, massive character actor who's been in all sorts of things like EastEnders and, and, and Coronation Street and that and that sort of thing. So again, it's one of those films where you can spot people who went on to greater things. And of course, another thing is the the soundtrack. You know, on, yes. I think John Landis must have said, "Go out there and find me any song that's got <laughs> the word Moon in the title." <laughs> so. Bad Moon Rising by Creedence Clearwater Revival, Blue Moon by Bobby Vinto, Moon Dance by Van Morrison, you know, and many others. And what was interesting is John Landis did actually ask Elmer Benstein to do the more of the uh, background music, which actually for the dream sequences or when the tension is building is yeah. really, really good and is so memorable as well as, well as the, the songs. I mean, like you, I discovered for the first time in a Credence Clearwater revival and became a fan ever since. But hey, 1981, Roger, it's the year of MTV. And John Landis knows his audience. And of course, yeah. he's going to do things like this because it just brings a unique identity to the film, of course. Absolutely. I mean, it was a stroke of genius, the, the music. The soundtrack <laughs> was just incredible. So 
what about the marketing? What about the marketing? I mean, ah. the strap line. The strap line of the film was "Beware the Moon." Yeah. Now the 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 marketing is mixed and mm. confused, and there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, the John Landis up to that point track record is around comedy films, the um, Kentucky Fried Movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that that one, yeah. Roger, but it's actually very funny and very cleverly put together criticism of the society of the time, National Lampoon's and Animal House, Blues Brothers, and so on. So. When the movie was first released, and we'll talk in a moment about the different ways in which they teased the audience, but the announcement for the distributors was, you know, a movie from the director of National Lampoon's An Animal House. People were brilliant. Let's go and watch a comedy. And we're absolutely horrified, of course, when they <laughs> sat and watched American Werewolf because there is elements of comedy, but it is most and form first and foremost a horror film. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so I think they got it a bit wrong there. Although mm. the, the trailers were pretty good, weren't they? You get snippets of the monster, um, snippets of the the makeup and the transformation sequences. Not you know enough to make you want to see it, but not enough to ruin the surprise. Yeah, which is very clever. So they, they began with a, a 60-second teaser, which frankly must have been filmed really at the very start of the production, just to get where the appetite of distributors, or maybe sometime, as is often the case, secure more finances as as you started the project. And what you get in the, in the space of 50 seconds is a scene taking place in the woods at night. You get a, a sense that's the case. The camera kind of shifts slowly to the ground where the full moon is reflecting on a pool of, of water and then suddenly blood just takes over and mm. then at the right time you, you get a quick growl a quick kind of mass getting past the camera we imagine to be the werewolf and then the, the title american werewolf in london is a so almost like a um project or film that was uh, teased that was made before the film then you've got yeah. a thirty-second teaser for for TV. Then the ninety-second kind of trailer uh, out there. But also, what they did really, really well, uh, and they were working and playing to these these special effects. There were so many. Certainly in, on French TV for me, there were so many reports about the amazing technical achievement. And so for me, I saw the scene in the underground as a bit of a teaser trailer, and we saw bits of the transformation which scared the bejesus out of me, uh, as we've said, mentioned before. And, and of course, part of what they did there was to, again, play to the different parts and facets of the movie. I think that was one of the most scary parts of the film, was that guy being chased through the underground. I mean, the underground is at that time was totally deserted it was it was quite late at night now most people associate the underground with crowds and crowds and crowds of people but imagine that you're in an underground station on your own and all of a sudden a gigantic werewolf hops up onto the platform oh my goodness and that guy just ran for his life up the escalator unfortunately yeah. he didn't make it that was that was a gripping scene an absolutely gripping scene it was just well, well put together um so when it comes to to the marketing once the movie is released they went onto what i, I was called at the time this publicity junket this was a british and american production roger so of course mm -hmm. they did tour the, a lot of europe uh, including Germany, who is a big, big market for, for horror films. Yes. And a claim to fame, I think Rick Baker was asked to improvise a bit of a, a special makeup workshop for the journalists because they were just so in awe of this talent. 
Yeah. And this isn't really a marketing thing, but they had a bit of fun in the credits as well, didn't they, of the film? Um, you know the bit about all yes. characters in the... Uh, it says something, all characters and events in this film are fictitious. Any similarity to actual events or persons, living, dead or undead, is purely coincidental. I just love that sort of thing. You may, no, Perhaps nobody would have noticed that, but the fact that they made the effort to put that in the credits is just joyous. But what happened then, the fans talk about it 40 years later, <laughs> which yes. has been, been true. I mean, they, this year, there would be 40th anniversary screenings all around the world. Even with yep. the um, lockdown measures in America, for example, they are doing drive-in screenings of American Werewolf in London. I'm sure they'd be the same all over Europe and other countries where the, the movie has done really, really well. The other thing that um, reminded me about the closing credits, typical John Landis because of his background in doing comedy films, but there was also um, wishing the very best to Princess Diana and Prince Charles on their <laughs> wedding because that was the year. Now, people are a little kind of surprised about this, but there is an uncut version of the movie where the character um, of David Norton runs around, um, I think, London at some stage and calls Prince Charles a faggot. And <laughs> John Land is going to real trouble with that. So he said, no, 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 you know, we're big fans. It's just a character, not me. So just to reassure viewers in, in England, particularly that John Landis was pro-British, he put that extra message at the end as well. Oh, that's lovely. That's <laughs> lovely. Wow. I mean, again, it's we, we really do pick some classic mm. films to talk about, and this one ticks so many diff different boxes. Dialogue, direction, obviously, makeup, special effects, physical effects, just absolutely incredible. It's always a joy to talk about these films, Pascal. I just get so excited reliving all mm. the memories that these films just generate. But we'll have to bring things to a close once again. So thank you everyone so much for watching the show. Thank you for listening to the show. We really do appreciate you taking the time to watch or listen. If you've got any comments or anything, leave them below the video or hit us up on Twitter, wherever you consume your podcasts. Get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the show. And of course, if there's any films that you'd like us to talk about. Pascal, thank you so much once again for being my companion on Two Geeks and the Marketing Podcast. Until next time, get out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Thank you for listening to the Film Marketing Academy podcast, the audio series dedicated to helping filmmakers create better film marketing campaigns faster. For more information about our film marketing consultancy and training services, go to filmmarketingacademy.com and book your free discovery video call. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe and follow your host on social media for more updates. 